Hello and welcome to Maths on the Move, the podcast from plus.maths.org. I'm Marianne Freiberger. To help mitigate climate change, the UK government has pledged to decarbonize UK electricity supply by 2035. That's a huge scientific and engineering challenge with a very tight deadline. In this episode, my colleague Rachel Thomas talks to two people who know all about the challenges involved. Chris Dent, who is a professor of industrial mathematics at the University of Edinburgh and currently spends half of his time working for the Global Power System Transformation Consortium. That's an international collaboration of electricity systems operators. And Rachel also talks to Lars Schewe, who is a reader in operational research at the University of Edinburgh and is interested in mathematical optimization with applications in energy. Chris and Lars were both organizers of a two-week workshop which took place earlier this year at the Isaac Newton Institute for Mathematical Sciences in Cambridge. The workshop was called Mathematics and Statistics for Low-Carbon Energy Systems and it was part of a longer research program at the Newton Institute. Chris and Lars tell Rachel why decarbonizing the electricity network also presents huge mathematical challenges and why the effort isn't unlike the Apollo mission that got people to the moon back in the 1960s. But they started off by telling her what changes need to be made if we're to move away from fossil fluids towards renewable energy sources. Here is Chris starting off the conversation. Yeah, if, it, if I can make it just one gen, one very general point, the, the usual idea of disruptive innovation is simply that, that inventions come along which either do an existing thing better or do something new. And uh, what we're dealing with Uh, in energy supply or in decarbonisation is looking to uh, keep doing, essentially keep doing existing things in a way that causes less environmental harm. And th this is very different. And one consequence of this is that we have either in industry or government societal targets to do certain things by certain dates. So we have this very unusual situation of rather than Uh, innovation to some extent happening happening organically as it did in you know, in my memory when uh, we had the developments of the internet uh, we're essentially looking to innovate against the clock and create disruptive innovation by particular deadlines and that's a very different business if you go back sort of in a quote-unquote pre-renewables time frame essentially the job of forecasting was mainly to forecast the demand, how much electricity demand will be there. And a lot of this is driven by things that people had a pretty good grip on. They knew when the sun is rising, when the sun is going down, when people switch their lights on, sort of people knew our oh, seasonalities. At some point, people just turn the lights on, even though it's not necessary, or turn them off at a certain point. Street lamps go on, go off certain electricity demand is always there or always not there and it's timed and things like that. So people had a pretty good idea. And to a certain extent, it's also regionally sort of similar because most of the demand is sort of not dependent on sort of local specifics. Whereas if we are looking at the situation now, you have... And for many of the electricity operators, this is visible as sort of less demand because people have a solar panel on their roof and so they need less electricity. 
they don't really sort of depending on which level you look at, they don't necessarily distinguish between that. But now this becomes much more challenging because suddenly the local situation plays a big role. Um, how much wind is there? How much solar is there? These things, suddenly the weather forecast becomes much more important, which was maybe less important earlier. Um, but now sort of the the forecasting problem becomes much more regionalized. Oh, these guys have more sun at the moment. So... We need to be careful here. And these things um, are are simply a new challenge in that sense. Um, or that's why it's, for me, difficult to say whether it's just a complication of the old challenge, makes the old challenge just harder. Or you would say, oh, no, this is now really a qualitative change. This is really something completely new. There's, a, there's such a range of of impacts of changing that energy source so you know i mean it's interesting you said the going from these aggregate understandings of demand to having to take into account local weather because they're do renewable yeah but I mean, you, you use the term intermittent and there are there are um uh I, I think I think it's useful just to unpick a little bit what we mean by the by that in terms of the properties of renewable generation. And the there are the, the top level there are two different aspects to that. One is that the the output is variable. Uh, it's not um, uh, it's it's not like um, conventional fossil fuel generation, where as long as you have the fuel and the thing isn't broken down, you can generate at whatever level you wish uh you have a, a output that's variable uh according to the uh to what the weather is doing uh you also have the the aspect that the output is uncertain uh you you have uh uncertainty on um a uh short time scale so you have uncertainty in forecasting just like you have uncertainty in weather forecasting um and storage is storage is very important if one has um a very high uh, proportion uh, if everyone has a very high proportion of renewable energy in the supply uh the, the, the exact way things fit together fit together is uh quite dependent on on what power system you're looking at um i mean in, in britain it's the case that uh, pretty much any electricity demand level for instance the wind generation can be doing pretty much anything uh i mean there may there may be some trends but there's a lot of variability about uh yeah well, well i mean one point as, as as you say is that uh if you have a very large uh capacity of, of wind generation and solar generation connected to the system then storage uh can uh uh can help smooth that out and essentially shift uh I mean, essentially short storage would shift shift energy in time so you can um uh take energy you can store energy at times when demand is relatively no relatively low and when it's relatively windy and and use it uh use it when uh, uh demand is high or available wind capacity is low so i think most people more instinctively think of sort of the physics and engineering involved in setting up an energy network. But what are some of the mathematical aspects of um, sort of building, designing, running an energy network? Chris, would you like to start with an answer to that? 
Yes, I mean, there, there have always been various uh, various mathematical aspects. Uh, one is on uh, how one optimizes uh, supply schedules, how one schedules uh, generation, uh, which is typically done using mathematical optimization models. Uh, there are various other applications that have always been around forecasting of electricity demand. Uh, which is a statistical matter. There's also a lot of mathematical modeling, statistical modeling, um, uh, decision analysis around system planning based on on targets for um, uh, how, how much generation is required to meet future demand, uh, or or how much network uh, how much network capacity is required to meet the power flows that we. Uh, we anticipate in system operation in in the future. And Lars, you mentioned that you're, you work uh, a lot in the field of optimization. Could you maybe give us an idea of of what that area of mathematics is and how how it's important in energy networks? So mathematical optimization looks at the problem that we have. Something that is, uh, say, a technical system, and we want to make the decisions optimally in such a way that a cost function typically is minimized if it's cost. If we think of it as welfare, the welfare is maximized. So, our goal is to sort of find algorithms, methods to understand how to solve these problems, but also to classify which problems are easy, which problems are hard. And then to sort of, if we have to pick mathematical models to guide people to use the easy models so that we can do good computation versus more difficult models that are hard to mod, uh, that are hard to optimize over that are hard algorithmically. And so if you look, say, at the electricity system, people for the, for planning purposes, they have a very clear model that they use, which is AC power flow and where they have good simulation tools that work for them. And that is all fine still comparatively difficult to optimize over. So not sort of the choice that I would make if I'm purely coming from the make an easy optimization model, but that's sort of what people say is good enough. But for instance, during the workshop in Cambridge, we had a discussion around frequency um, deviations and sort of voltage deviations um, coming from the control of renewable power stations, where it's quite clear that that model that sort of essentially more or less sort of assumes a fixed frequency over time to a certain extent, bit simplifying here, um, is not adequate because we have these huge fluctuations. So we need a much more complex model to understand these effects. So this is the type of sort of um, help that we can give and then the pure algorithmically make it faster, make it sort of that it works for large networks. So um, it's interesting. So you, that's an interesting example. So you were both um, organizers of this deep dive workshop on maths, mathematics and statistics for low carbon energy systems earlier in the year at the Isaac Newton Institute in Cambridge. Um, and as the UK is aiming for a decarbonized energy network uh, in 2035, I think. So these are really key questions. The, the point is, in many cases, you can view on a technical level, this transition to renewables, either as a problem of sort of drastic qualitative change, but many of the questions that we look at is are more of a quantitative change. So you have just 
more problems that come on. So they, they have used these more complex models also in the classical power system, but simply they had less problems that required them. Similarly, if Chris is now coming in, for instance, on the demand forecasting side, um, we will have we will see that sort of the renewables, or let's first go back to optimization on the renewable side. We will we expect that we will have much ma many more smaller generators versus fewer big generators. So suddenly the decision problems, which generator to schedule, yes, no, simply becomes much more complex because suddenly you have to choose between more, uh, you have more choices than you had before. And so that's where sort of the cognitive load for people in the control room say, well, if I only have 40 stations to look after and we are 10 people looking at the stuff, then this is all fine, picking numbers out of sort of thin air, uh, versus if we have 200 of these, suddenly it becomes much more complicated. If we have 1,000 of these, this is definitely impossible for us to do. So this is more the type of things where people are worried about, where you could say, in a sense, the problems always existed, but suddenly the variability is much higher, the scope is the, the scope is much bigger, the size is much bigger. You have some specialized questions, but often it's really a sort of suddenly older questions become much more complicated and require mathematical methods and algorithmic methods because sort of standard, somebody sits, looks at the problem, solves it or solves it well enough in their head and uses all their expertise is just less, um, less doable, to put it simply. Chris, what can you tell us about how this area of maths developed? I, I, the, story of, the story of this, uh, well, the, the origins of this were maybe a little bit surprising to people who don't, who, who, who don't know the history. Uh, the first Energy Systems Week at the Isaac Newton Institute for Mathematical Sciences was actually part of a six-month programme on mathematics of communication systems. And there's been a there's been a very long history of uh, essentially stretching right back to the beginnings of any kind of modern communication systems in the early 20th century of um, mathematical scientists uh, uh, being being involved in the uh, design or operation of comm systems uh, and the, indeed the fields of uh, applied probability and communications have uh, over, over the last hundred and a bit more years have uh, really grown together and fed off each other um and uh historically the the involvement of uh, mathematical sciences in uh in electrical power systems has been rather less um, and so, so the the the, the original idea was for, well, firstly that uh, I mean it, by 2010, uh, decarbonizing energy systems was a very important societal topic. Uh, so there was a general desire to have have some kind of event or program to see how mathematical sciences could contribute. And then uh, also there was a, a specific thought around what of the kind of mathematics that had developed around design and operation of communication systems could be transferred across. So we we had the uh, so that 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 was a, a that that event in um uh, 2010 was particularly important in in starting uh, everything off, and then there's been a a, a series of workshops um, 
which uh, it's, it's, it's not a, not exactly an officially connected series of workshops, but it's been uh, they've, uh, a series of different events, some at the Isaac Newton Institute, some at the International Centre for Mathematical Sciences in Edinburgh, some organised by other people or specific projects, which have kept this uh, kept this community together. And then there was a, a four month program on the mathematics of energy systems at the Isaac Newton Institute in uh, twenty nineteen. Uh, and when, when you have one of these Newton Institute programs, I, I sometimes uh, describe the these as the sort of Woodstock of the relevant area of mathematics. And I remember one person coming up with all of these rather uh, illicit things that uh, a Woodstock could mean. And of course, what I simply mean is it's the place to be. It's where you know everyone is there. So that was a that was a that was a very significant event because this has continued further within the program on data driven engineering. We had a uh, we we had a two week uh, period in January February this this year when uh, we uh, speci we specifically focused on three themes, uh, which particularly actually arose from this organisation I'm working with called the Global Power System Transformation Consortium. So th this is this is a international alliance of electricity system operators, uh, which, uh, which which is looking to accelerate the, the research and innovation to meet to meet some of these challenges. And Lars, um, looking to the future, what what do you what do you think we can expect from this area of maths? What are you hopeful for? That's a good question. Um, I think so. We will see quite a quite a bit of sort of incremental progress on the math side first. It's quite clear that certain techniques are already established under the hood, so to say. So often you have sort of software packages that companies in the energy sectors just buy that include a lot of math and include a lot of challenging math, but it's not necessarily visible to them, which is to a certain extent a, a good sort of division of labor. Yeah, where you have sort of this works, it does what it says on the tin, you don't necessarily need to know how. But I think you will also see quite a lot of people will be more explicitly thinking about the mathematics of the problem, specifically in the more control side of things, the operation side of things, um, where you have sort of lots of small decisions to make pretty quickly. And I think that is something where you, where sort of mathematical methods where will play a more explicit role. So both the under the hood maths that people don't necessarily see will improve, but also there'll be yeah. these explicit um, calls on the mathematics. Chris, did you want to? Yeah, I, I would just say, coming from a slightly different angle, I think one of the exciting points in analogy to the um, uh, uh in analogy to the field of communications, which I mentioned earlier, is where this might, uh, where these these societal needs in energy systems might uh, kick off uh, development of new areas of mathematics, which are, are significant not just in terms of uh, the the important applications in engineering, uh, but but which are important as, as uh, areas of mathematical endeavour. In their own right, and I, I think this this the the the, the this um, a symbiosis between uh, communication systems and the uh, area of applied probability is not the not the only area I think of. I mean, another very good example that's developed more recently is that um, 
is that um, a lot of the developments in the mathematics and statistics around quantifying and managing uncertainty have been driven by interest in climate science, where people people use the lot. I mean very large scale computer models are, are used to project future climate and it's necessary to be you know, these are these obviously don't give you a, a a number which the the weather or climate will will be in 2050 or 2100 or whenever you have some uncertainty in these projections and uh and the that again that vital societal application has 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 been critical in in driving developments in in a further area of mathematics so not only will it be beneficial in terms of um helping us decarbonize the energy network but also we have these applications always bring about interesting mathematics um how do you think how do you think we'll go i think what makes this also challenging is quite a lot of sort of let's call it network effects essentially we have a net so certain things only work at scale so you have to roll them out at scale and that is where sort of the um you don't necessarily have these localized things where you can say oh we do something and then it works if you think the discussion going on and off hydrogen for home heating something that i sort of am familiar with due to my work with gas networks essentially rolling this out is not something where everybody in a road can decide living in a street i want hydrogen and i don't want hydrogen either everybody gets it or nobody gets it and so you need to have these sort of that's what makes this roll makes it clear that you have to have a designed rollout and that's why you need to sort of think about how you make these how to come to decisions for these sort of big questions because for certain things, you can rely on sort of organic growth and you can see sort of which technology will win and this is all fine. For certain technologies, it's really difficult to think about what is it. You, you need more sort of structured plans. And again, it's possible. We switched from town gas to natural gas. And so these switches where everybody has to do it on a certain day are possible, but you need sort of the strategy and the idea that you actually want to do it. Chris, do you think we we will be able to, it's feasible to decarbonise our UK energy system by 2035? There are two, well, there, there are two sides there. There's the, I mean, there's the, there are often two sides to these questions. There's capability and the will. And I think we do have time. If we're looking to 2035, that's still, um, well, the start of 2035 is, is just over 11 years away. So the, I mean, there's, there's a decent amount of time there. But I, I think the question is, are uh, that at some point we reach a timeline where it becomes infeasible if we don't have a co closely coordinated research uh, innovation deployment pipeline. And the, I mean, there are I mean, the two pl two classic examples of such pipelines where people have either expressed urgency around a particular technology or literally set a specific. Uh, timeline are the Manhattan program in the Second World War and the Apollo program in the 1960s. And with the Apollo program, Kennedy literally did say that by the end of 1969, we will put a man on the moon. And then you have these... Um, you have these very tightly coordinated programs uh, linking together basic research needs and the um, deployment uh, as 
uh, specific uh, you know, engineering technology solutions. Um, and I think we're, we're coming to the point where that, that kind of thing is needed. Uh, and that's what I mean about the, uh, the difference between being capability to do it in principle and the will to actually have that kind of coordination that's required actually to make it happen. So I think uh, I'd be optimistic about the capability. I mean, whether we have whether we have the will to do what's necessary in terms of a coordinated program to make it happen, I'm a bit less certain of. That was Chris Dent explaining the level of effort it will take to decarbonize the energy network in the UK by 2035. Chris and his colleague Lars Schäfer were speaking to my colleague Rachel Thomas. You can read more about their work and about the research program at the Newton Institute in Cambridge by visiting plus.maths.org and searching for energy network. Or you can follow the links in the episode notes. That's it for this episode of Maths on the Move. Thanks for listening and bye bye. <laughs>